Welcome, one and all, to the Film Harmonic with your hosts, Noah East. And Andy Ferguson. We are very glad that you decided to join us as we discuss and dissect films, both current and bygone. You can find the Film Harmonic podcast on Apple Podcasts, where we encourage you to leave us a review and a pleasant rating, and on Spotify, Google Play, Amazon Alexa, and Buzzsprout. And you can send review requests for the Throwback Challenge to thefilmharmonic at gmail.com. In episode 16, we split duties, so Noah will have five good questions for me about Richard Linklater's newest film, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? And I will return the favor regarding the preteen raunch fest, Good Boys. Which takes us to our pick six for the week, where we are raking the six best road trip films of all time. Leading us into the throwback challenge to close out the show, in which listener Jess Husick commissioned us again, this time with 1983's John Hughes penned Mr. Mom, and Nor Ephron's Hanks Ryan collab, Sleepless in Seattle. So Andy, are you ready to dig in? Let's do this. All right. We kick off this week's show with five good questions as Andy and I split up to cover more ground at the multiplex since it was another lean week for the box office offerings. And we're going to start with Richard Linklater's newest release starring Kate Blanchett along with Kristen Wiig and Billy Crudup. Andy, I have five good questions for you about Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Where'd you go, Bernadette? Ask away. Okay, well, um, let's get started my first question is uh number one does this feel inherently like a richard Linklater film or is this kind of is this going to be one of his outlier films it's a combination of both i think there is an there is somewhat of an a trace of his identity in this movie um, but it's been kind of uh cycle washed out <laughs> you could tell this movie had rewrites and re and a and a couple of probably some uh, shavings uh, along the way there. Clearly the subject matter is something that he would be interested in because it's about an artist, an architect who is deep into her work in her early life. And then somewhere along the way moves out of LA where she has always lived and worked because her husband is becoming more successful and has to move to Seattle. He has a huge, huge job at Microsoft and they oh. move there in their 20s, and she kind of stops working and loses the desire to, the passion for her field of work. And it slowly shows her kind of deteriorate in, internally. And it, and it feels like something that he would, you could see why he wanted to make this. But, uh, man, once this movie gets into the, its meat, it loses all, all feeling of Link later. Like really? the, what you love about him. Okay. Um, question number two, leading right into that is, is that necessarily a bad thing? Uh, this movie falls into that category of his, every once in a while he'll do a movie like a School of Rock or a Bad News Bears, where it's clearly he's got some funding and some bigger stars to make. Um, a fun Fun passion project, maybe. Sure, it's kind of like it's this. Maybe this one has it wants to have more in common with me and Orson Welles. Okay, that other movie that didn't do a whole lot at the box office, but it was a passion project. Yeah, and it had Zac Efron attached. He was blown up at the time, but um, man, it for me, I want a Linklater movie to feel like one, and it's it. it it does matter that it doesn't. 
Like I it, see. The second half of this movie in particular lost me. We'll get back to that in okay. a second. Okay. So my next question is, uh, obviously Blanchett is the lead, and she's, you know, she's known for being an exceptional actor. Um, yeah. Among the supporting cast, there's also Wig and Crudup and a few others. Uh-huh. Who stands out other than Blanchett the most? Um, well, this is this is obviously a big, big role, like showy role for Blanchett. It's a title character. It is, and she's very kind of... She's pretty. She's kind of jittery. She has a little bit of her blue jasmine character in here, um, so she she obviously is the reason to see it if you're going for the acting. But this movie has a bigger supporting list than you would think. There's very small roles by Lawrence Fishburne and Steve Zahn and Megan Mullally, oh, wow. and Judy Greer, um, but but that's just based on people want to work with him now. Yeah. So he can really attract anybody if he wanted to, and this movie proved that. Um, Kristen Wiig doesn't get enough to do she's fine um she's she's doing that Kristen wig thing where she's always funny no matter what material she's given but the role isn't great um billy crudup uh, as her husband uh blanchett's character's husband uh who's struggling to f- find a way to kind of save mentally save his wife uh and balance his his hugely his huge responsibilities at Microsoft is he's good in it. He is good. I've always, I mean, we both really love the guy. Uh, he's an underrated actor. I wouldn't say that he really stands out though. Nobody really stands out. Really? I will say though that the new the 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 girl who plays B, Bernadette's daughter, Emma Nelson, she's brand new. Um she's capable in this movie. With better material as far as screenplays go, I feel like she might succeed later on so it sounds to me like um like this was a bit of a disappointment for you so tell me Mm. what what about the second half of the film really uh made it lose so much steam to where it sounds like you ultimately disliked more than you liked you know when every once in a while a movie comes along and you can feel not only see but you can feel that there are too many cooks in the kitchen and while you're watching it, this movie is like that. Mm. And in different kinds of cooks that don't mesh right. As far as the screenplay goes, it feels like somebody who adapts bad Lifetime movies jumped in and, and tried to hammer home like the, the sweeping, heartwarming, triumphant family reunion moments later on in this movie that it just it really and the score even gets worse it's weird it sounds the score it, gets it starts telegraphing plot points and oh, that's obnoxious you're like what is happening here it actually there's a moment later on in this movie um where bernadette's reunited in a way with her family and when it happens you actually are like I think maybe the first time ever I was like, is Kate Blanchett really bad in this scene? <laughs> she was bad in a scene, and I was like, wow, I mean, she's only doing what she's given, but man, what she's given right here is so corny and so over the top with like, I mean, it was like made for TV shit at, at one point in this movie it, later it's, on. It sounds like they focus grouped the thing to death. Yeah. Um, my girlfriend, who's watched it with me when these, when those scenes hit, she looked at me and she said, well, wow, that was a really bad line. I was like, yeah, 
every line in this scene is really bad right now. Wow. And it's like the most climactic part of the movie. And I have to say, whatever good it had built up before that, I forgot about. Uh, she just liked it more than I did in the end. But the some of the things it, it did in the second half of the movie, I couldn't forgive. Just couldn't. Wow. Well, what did you give it? Let me just say this, too. This ends a really great streak for Richard Linklater. Um, what was his, his most recent well, film? Was Last, Last Flag, Flag Flying? Flying, which yeah. didn't get great reviews. I thought it was very good. Yeah, I know a lot of people that thought but it was really good. he had, before Midnight in 2013, Boyhood in 2014. Shortly after that, he had... Everybody, Everybody wants, wants some. some. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And then Last Flag Flying. I mean, that's a good stretch, a nice stretch. right there. Yeah. That's a good run. This movie was delayed. I, I was reading, this movie was delayed four different times. It, it filmed in 2017, wrapped shortly after, before 2017 even ended. The movie was ready to go. It was supposed to come out in the spring of 2018. Got delayed to the fall of 2018. Got delayed to March of this year. Got delayed again to August 9th, and then they delayed it to August 16th. That's very strange. I don't, this movie has went through some trouble along the way, and I can see why. <laughs> um, I'm, at, I'm at a two on this. Wow. Yeah, like I said, there are things that it did okay early on, but is it's a dumpster fire in the second half. Wow. It's That's bad. And I don't mean to keep comparing things, especially to this, but that means that you gave The Art of Racing in the Rain a full star better than this. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a lot of expectations now when I watch a Richard Linklater movie. I gave this the same... Uh, you gave this the same score that I gave Hobbs and Shaw. True, true. <laughs> it's true. It's fun to make those comparisons. Yeah, yeah. Keeping it going, I've got... Five similarly good questions for Noah about the newest film Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg have produced together. It's being compared nonstop to another film of theirs from a decade ago, but in this one, the kids are younger. We are, of course, talking about Good Boys. Good Boys. Good Boys. Uh, which film is it being compared to? <laughs> is it um, Super Bad with tweens? I think is oh, the, the most bad. apt comparison people super are saying. Super bad. I think off mic over the last well months since this, this movie's been marketed for a long time. Oh yeah, we have even for two seconds into the trailer, we're like oh great, super bad. Yeah. Um, uh, so I guess getting right into it, I have to ask right away: Is this movie a one-trick pony? Does it have the one kind of joke that it keeps stretching out, which is kids being profane? Um, that does run through the nervous system of the film throughout. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't say that it is a one-trick pony with that being the trick. No. Uh -uh. Okay. No. I think that would be unfair to say about this particular film. Okay, so that leads me into this, which kind of answered that question. Hopefully, this is a yes. Does it have a? Does it have a Goldberg Rogan feel at its core? You know, it it kind of does, but with a little more whimsy hmm. than what you get. So it's from, more lighthearted. 
Yeah, it's much more lighthearted and less cynical than what you would get from a lot of, from many of the the Rogan Goldberg comedies that they either just produce or actually write and direct. So it actually, that mean, does that mean it follows mostly just these kids, or does it divert off into more adult characters ever? No, it is only about these kids. Okay, okay. All right. Well, these three good boys. How super baddie is it? I have to ask. I mean, as far as plot, like outline and where it's going the whole 24 hour period thing yeah it it is a just a 24 hour period thing for the most part um and it's it's not as super bad because it's not as raunchy and because the kids are so naive most of the time Mm. but it also um the the other way that it's very dissimilar is is that um there's the stakes are lower you know, okay. it's not as high stakes as as some of Superbad sometimes feels. What exactly is the journey that they're on in this? So the journey is this. They're three best friends. They're called the Beanbag Boys because they have beanbags <laughs> okay. in, their, in their little fort that they have in the basement of one of their houses or whatever. And they play Magic the Gathering or something. <laughs> some, I think it's called Ascension is the card game, but it's much like Magic the Gathering. Hmm. And they're they're dorky little, little boys. And... Um, uh, they want they one of them gets invited to a party with the cool kids, and again they're like they're like eleven. You the know? cool kids are older. I assume? no no the cool kids oh, are all their age. It's okay. Just the cool kids. Soren, uh-huh, uh-huh. the cool kid, and his his friends. Okay. Um, and uh, so there's going to be kissing at this party, and they've never kissed before, so they need to find out how how to kiss good. Because Jacob Tremblay's character has a crush on this girl, and he doesn't want to go to this party without knowing how to kiss. So his dad, Will Forte, goes out of town on a business trip. Will Forte's his dad in this? Yes. And he <laughs> leaves his drone. His dad uses a drone for work. It's never explained why he has it. Oh, perfect. But he tells him not to touch it, and the kids decide they are going to use it to spy on their neighbors so they can learn about kissing. And um, one thing leads to another. The 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 neighbor girls steal the drone and so they steal her purse which has molly in it and so it's the quest is these two high school girls and these three good boys um battling one another to to the girls want their their drugs back and they want their drone back and that's it and so that that actually leads me to a question i didn't have but now i have this how much does the trailer actually give you? Because that all that you just mentioned, I got from the trailer. Yeah, um, the trailer does a decent job of telling you what what basically unravels. What does it unfolds give you too much? Film. No, honestly, it doesn't because it doesn't tell you enough about the kids' school life and okay. like and why why they're doing all of the hijinks. It's for an ultimate purpose. You know, for this for this party that they that they want to go to with the cool kids to impress the cool kids mm. and kiss a girl. I, I assume Tremblay's good in this, uh, uh, but it, it, you can answer that in a second. But is there anyone else there that's kind of like, oh wow, that's impressive? Or were they just, you know, how sometimes kid actors can just be? Eh. I'll tell you, all three of them are solid. Keith L. Williams is the best thing about this movie really yes he is the goodest of the good boys 
There's a, there's a scene in the trailer where he kind of screws up his leg or something. I think his arm. His arm. Okay. He, yeah, yeah. He runs. He, How does that scene play in the movie? Does it's it, fine. It's okay. fine. It's fine. But I imagine he has better moments. He has that much are better kept moments. out of the trailer. Absolutely good because that's a fear yeah. when you're because we saw this trailer so much. Every movie we went to. You oh know, yeah, it was the last three months. Even if they were comedies or not, we were we've the seen trailer, this trailer honestly. Much, yeah. Remember, this kid, I hope he's going to be a star because he looks funny. He's adorable. He's really funny, and he's really good at the emotional stuff too. The kids, the kid could be a really good actor. Remember months and months ago when Booksmart and this had the trailers back to back. Yes. And they had the same song in the trailer, yes. and you're like, what the, the hell? The Run the Jewels song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and then. Booksmart came out shortly after it was being advertised, but this movie was advertised and advertised and advertised and for months and months and months. Yeah. I honestly got tired of seeing that trailer. So did I, and I think that's part of the reason I was not very excited to go see this movie. Yeah. You know? All right. So, before I ask you what you give it, it sounds like you were a little pleasantly surprised, um, but are we tired of this premise yet? Is this like, should this be the end of this for a while? It, it's just getting a little recycled at this point. I'll say this. It's better than a lot. This premise, these kind of films are better than a lot of what Hollywood does put out that's extra cookie cutter and repetitive. Sure. I'll take this fun, kid-centric premise over another Fast and the Furious movie. Sure. Twice a week. Yeah, at least it's not a sequel or anything like that, you know, or part of a franchise. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's it's doing something that's somewhat original, even though it's based on something that's not original at all. At least you're spinning it a little bit. Is Stranger Things responsible for these kind of movies getting made? Because It might be. It it feels, I mean, that might be the best part about Stranger Things being so big, is that now there's all this focus on this age group heading a movie. Yeah. Whether it be, you know... Uh, 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 a 80s themed horror show on Netflix or a raunchy comedy, which yeah. is kind of cool. Yeah, sure. I don't have a problem with, with them, with Hollywood and the studios pitching these kind of movies to us. I, again, it's a lot better than, than the extra recycled stuff that we tend to get, especially this time of year. So, Is this just a produced Rogan Goldberg thing? Yeah, they, they only produced it. Writing it. No, all? they just produced it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What'd you give it? I think we can give it three stars. It's okay. it's solid. Um, it's not super hilarious, but there are several moments that are really funny. It's got tons of heart, surprisingly. Okay. It's, it's really about these three guys' friendship. Um, Keith L. Williams's parents, played by Laurel Hal- Laurel Howery and Rita, Retta, Retta from Parks and Rec. Oh, Rack. sure, yeah. yeah. Um, they're getting a divorce, and so he's dealing with some emotional stuff himself. Um, one of the kids is wants to try out for musicals, but he's getting made fun of for doing that. Are there any other notable adult actors in this movie other than Will Forte and the two you just mentioned as well? No. Hmm. Okay. No, because it's mostly just about the kids. Honestly. And Will Forte is like a single dad in it, or what? Or is yeah? We never meet the mom, huh. so um, okay. It really doesn't focus on the adults hardly at all. And that's that, that's actually surprising. I'm kind of glad. But uh, oh man, I forgot to ask you this real quick. Hopefully the whole the sequence that scared me the most from the trailer is the one with the cop where they had the run in with the cop. It's not one of the better. It looked like one of those another convenience store cop scene from Superbad kind of thing, you know, like when when McLovin goes in and tries to buy the beer and then he runs into Rogan and Peter. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not like that. And it's only one scene and it's not 
It's not that bad. That uh, actor playing the cop, I always forget his name, but he's in Veep. Yeah, I think he's also he was also in Reno 911, or maybe I'm confusing him with somebody else. Maybe that's just because it's a cop. Um, but uh, you know, th- that scene is much like a lot of the other the rest of the film, where it 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 could seem to be a little lame, and you're kind of it seems almost half-hearted. But the film does one of two things so really right throughout throughout most of the film that it's saved by this one it leans on a little bit of the heart. And okay. so it's either adorable or heartfelt and, and earnest. And then, again, Keith L. Williams. This kid saves so many scenes by being... He's the, he's the extra goody two-shoes of them. Mm. And it, it's... It, that shtick never wears thin throughout any of the film. It's, it's cute and, ador- and adorable the entire time to where he saves this movie. You've sold me. I'll, I'll I'll see it. I it's, won't, it's I won't go worth, to the theater to see it, but I will no. see this movie. Yeah, you don't need to see it in the theater. It's worth seeing, though. Okay. Especially for this kid. He's he's terrific in it. Fair enough. All right. All right, well, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, grab your suitcase and your toothbrush because we're hitting the road. Pick six is next, so stay where I can see you. Welcome back, adventurers. Our pick six this week is going to be an all-timer. The summer is coming to a close, and we thought it'd be fitting to end it with a road trip down memory lane. We are ranking the six best road trip films of all time, so starting with you, as always, Andy, what do you have at number six? This is the second pick six in a row that will have Alexander Payne on my list. Number six for me is Nebraska. All right, number six... On your list is Nebraska. Mm-hmm. It is also on my list. Okay. Well, uh, number six is uh, Bruce Dern's vehicle all the way. Bruce oh, yeah. Dern's great in this film. Uh, he's he he plays a crotchety old man who's fallen for a scam that he's won a million dollars. Publisher's clearinghouse. Mm-hmm. And he decides that one way or another he's going to get it, even though that means walking from by foot across the country, basically. Um, so he, he does this and he and it quite literally tries to do it by walking at first. <laughs> it's shot in beautiful black and white. This movie by Alexander Payne, uh, one of his best looking movies, maybe close to the best looking movie, even though the Midwest of this movie is kind of dull and, but it's because he shoots it in black and white that makes it look so so pretty you mm-hmm. know what i mean yeah it kind of it kind of paints it as not this dingy dirty place mm-hmm. but rather it's got this this earthy mystique to it so yeah yeah he's um uh 
despite his wife's grumblings about him doing this, he he takes the car. And, and June Squibb, of course, everyone loved her in this movie. She got an Oscar nomination for this she movie. She sure did. So did Bruce Dern. Uh, uh, but uh, she was like this, quote, scene stealer, everyone wanted to say. And she's funny in this. She's very funny at times. But he, he um, takes the car and his son, who he's not very really close with, played, played by, by Will Forte. Again, who, who Will we just Forte. spoke about. Will Forte's best performance, I want to say, too. Easily. Uh, because uh, this, it's, this, it's either that or McGruber. Yeah. Oh, man, McGruber. Yeah. <laughs> this is the Will, This is the one movie, though, where a comedic actor, a strictly comedic actor, is taken out of his comfort zone again. And, and like I was mentioning a few weeks back with Adam Scott in The Vicious Kind, uh, this is a change of pace for him. And he, his rapport with Bruce Dern is quite good in this. And they, and they go on this journey together. And along the way, you know, when they get to their destination, kind of, they're met by old family members who suddenly want to be Bruce Dern's best friend again. Oh, yeah. Because everyone believes that he's going to be a millionaire. And he meets some, uh, yeah, you know, kind of scum suckers. Sure does. <laughs> Stacy Keach Stacey is Keech. one of those despicable characters. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's just, it's, it's just so good. The, the writing, and it, it's so weird is that this is the first film in Alexander Payne's career that he didn't have a part in writing, which I thought was bizarre because it all feels like it's very, his writing. It's very Payneian. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, this, this has the feel of like a world he created in something like About Schmidt, you know? Well, and that shows like the way that he can uh, take a camera, and even if the words aren't his, and still use that almost as a writing tool to You're still right. get his his very personal touch to it. That's 100% correct. There are moments in this movie where, uh, specifically the way he shoots Bruce Dern in certain angles, that you just know it has the Payne look. Payne has his own very unique look. And this movie is, quite frankly, one of his best movies, I think. Yeah, Absolutely. We're yeah. going to talk about it really soon. Okay. Really soon. Um, I almost had it at number six, but it is a better movie than my number six, but I could not make this list without my number six, mm. and that is Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> I was I was wondering if this would make your list. Dumb and Dumber is, it, I felt, was the perfect place to start the list. It is impossibly funny. It stands the test of time. The, the Carrie Daniels... Mm. Uh, dynamic between the two of them is never gets old yeah and and this was at a time when i didn't know that jeff daniels wasn't a comedic actor because he was in this i thought he was a a comedy guy and he wasn't up to that point really and then you you know you see all the other things that he'd been in even before or around that time like like uh blood simple and speed (laughs) not blood simple blood work oh yes um and speed and shit like that yeah exactly and like you know, I realize now that, that he wasn't. This was almost sort of an outlier. Yeah, not really. I mean, yeah, he wasn't really a comedic actor. The only thing I can think of before this maybe was, um, oh God, what was that one he did? Was it um, something like, I think it was with Kim Basinger and, and uh, Dan Aykroyd or something. Some, it was like something like My Stepmother's an Alien or something weird like that. <laughs> Just some weird yeah. movie like that. But this is like... It was. I remember this movie being so shocking because everyone went for Carrie, and then Daniels turns out to be just as good, if not better. I, I was getting ready to say he's he might actually be better than Jim Carrey in this. Jim movie. Carrey was the draw for 
specific reasons at the time. He was For one sure. of the biggest stars in the he world. He was at the fresh time. off of the gigantic hit that was Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Yeah, and then The Mask would be around this time, yeah. too. This was third right behind that. So it went Ace Ventura, The Mask, and then this. Yeah, he was huge. Yeah, he was, he couldn't, he was, he was the biggest thing in comedy. And this, this was, this kind of kick-started the Fairley Brothers career, too, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, man, I don't blame you for putting this on the list. It's just, it, it holds up as still very, very funny. It's a it's very, a remarkably it's silly movie, but in a great way. It's silly, it's quotable, and it's, and it's really funny. So I could. That, that's what's a great thing about number six on the pick six is you can be like, well, yeah, but this movie deserves to be. <laughs> yeah. Even though it technically might and, not. And as far as, as uh, comedy, 90s comedies that are road trip movies, um, there's one that could have been at number six instead of it that we'll talk about in the honorable mentions. But I had to make the choice between the two of them. And I went okay. with this. We'll, we'll Looking discuss that later. Hearing about that. Uh, what's number five on your list? Number five uh, for me is a movie that I had, honestly, I haven't seen in a while, but I still remember it really well, and that's Itumama uh, Tambien. Ah, yes. Um, I was floored by this movie when I first saw it. I think this is the first Alfonso Cuaron movie that I saw. Uh, maybe Great Expectations before that, but I don't think, it, I think I saw, see, the funny thing is, is I saw this in the theater based on, at the time, this is 2002, and... I was really into, at the time, I was like, whatever Roger Ebert says, I trust. I'll go to see it. And I went based on his glowing review. And it's this is an entrancing movie. Um, it really makes me want to rewatch it soon, too. I haven't had time to do it lately before I made this list, but I knew it had to be on there. It's just, it's, it's a really unique story about two close friends played by Gael Garcia Bernal and Diego Luna who are very good friends in real life in real life as well Um, and they're both very good actors in real life yes yeah and especially at this time Bernal was also coming off of Amores Peros and you know working with Coron and Inaritu at the time that that was like and this is when those guys were booming starting to really get big Um, I thought Bernal was going to be a massive star we all did and he's turned out to have a good career. He's had a very solid career. Yes, yes. yes. But, uh, man, they're both impossibly young in this movie. And they go on this summer vacation together. Uh, their girlfriends are going away out of town together. And they decide to just hang out and go on the road, explore Mexico. And, and along the way, they come in contact with this woman who's about 10 years older than them, who finds out that her husband's cheated on her recently and takes them up on an offer to just <gasps> hang out for a weekend and just talk and see sights. What happens is, you know, there's a this is a very um, a clash of generations kind of movie. Um, this woman who sees, you know, through them a mile away. They think they're suave individuals. They're very sexually intrigued by her, and she also wants to teach them a few things, even though they don't really see it coming. And the movie is really, really impressive. Caron is, I think you would agree, he's one of the great filmmakers, I mean, of this century. Of this century, yes, yeah. absolutely. He doesn't work often. I mean, he's always at work, but he doesn't. he's not prolific in the way... Some directors are, but each time he puts something out now, you're just like, okay, 
probably going to be something that's close personal to him. And I think this is, apart from Roma, which is his most personal movie, obviously, this one, I think, he, he draws from his life as well. Probably something, some experiences in the same age range that he had as the two characters in this movie. Um, as good as Bernal and Luna are, uh, Maribel Verdu is the great... The woman? Yes. Yeah. Plays the woman who's... They're like 25. She's probably in her late 30s. Um, she's very good in this movie. You've seen this, right? No, I've never seen it. Really? I'm in, I I thought you had. No, I've never seen it. You gotta see it. Uh, it's been on my watch list for ages and ages. Criterion Channel. Ding, perfect. ding. That's the perfect excuse to, yep. to dig yep. into it. Well, my number five is Nebraska. Okay. So uh, we don't need to talk too too much at length yeah. about it. I, I I wanted to make sure that we mentioned Stacy Keach, which you did at the end of yours. But I also wanted to mention Bob Odenkirk, who plays uh, the older brother, right? The older brother, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's the successful one. Will Forte, not so much, which is why Will Forte is able to go on the trip with Bruce Dern. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's really lovingly told. It's 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 a nice emotional you know at times even melancholy film and i think the melancholy of it is enhanced by the black and white that yeah. Payne chooses to shoot it with but the performances are what really just makes this thing um by uh, uh professional actors like yeah. bruce dern and jude squibb and will forte and stacy keach but then also the the non-professional actors that play some of his family members and and some of the townsfolk and yeah. the different towns yeah. that they that they end up in one of them is devin ratray buzz from home alone from home alone <laughs> yeah yeah he plays one of his cousins yeah oh yeah. yeah he does um a lot of people criticize pain his criticizers say that he mocks these kind of people i don't think that he does at all i don't either i completely disagree with that assertion i i do too i think he's creating a world and he's respecting the world it's some of some of it's just funny in a way that's weird and it's just th- their way of life and their 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 points of view are just funny yeah and it's not it's not dismissing them or or poking fun at them or no. even voyeurism at all it's just it's it's taking it for what it is and seeing it through a lighthearted lens. I agree. You know, it's not it's not laughing at them. Mm-hmm. In a similar way that he was doing it with the Hawaiian community in The Descendants. Exactly. It's t- it's finding joy in it, not making fun of it. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So, that Nebraska at number five for me. What's okay. number four on your list? Number four for me is an Alexander Payne film. We have the same number four. About Schmidt. About Schmidt is my number four as I well. I was hoping this would be on your back list. Back-to-back uh, Alexander Payne movies. And keep in mind, Election was on our lists as well. Exactly. <laughs> this is kind of bizarre. Yeah, it is. And again, we also talked heavily about Jack Nicholson last episode in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yep. This, some, oh man, well, this was about 28 years after. More than that, almost. This was 2002, and Cuckoo's yeah. Nest was 75. 75. Yeah, so, so yeah. More than 20 some. Well, oh yeah, you're right, 27 years. 27, yeah. Yeah. So... But man, he looked he he is aged quite a bit, big time. Um, this is one of his last great performances because he's semi-retired. He basically retired after what The Departed, yeah, something like that. But uh, yeah, this this is almost like a anti Jack Nicholson performance in the way that he's not the actor you would think of for this part because this character is kind of lifeless. And kind of stoic. given up on his life, basically realized that he spent his whole life doing nothing he's really wanted to do. But the way Nicholson plays this role is just 
stunning to watch. Yeah, and I think it's it's so stunning because we're used to seeing Nicholson performances where he's very vivacious and yeah, the Joker and, and animated <laughs> and and bug eyed and does the thing with his eyebrows. The eye twitch. Yeah, all, all none of that's there. The whole th- no, this is a very subdued performance mm-hmm. that it, it it that's what lends it its gravity is taking this guy, this actor that we all know for the specific thing and having him just cut trimming all of that off and what you're left with is this husk of a man and he plays it just like that that's why it almost would have been the great final performance of his career if this was the last one that almost would have been more poignant yeah it would have been like robert redford's old man and the gun it would have been yeah. a, a tremendous send-off not him. saying that i'm not grateful that scorsese worked with him finally in the departed but sure this this would have been a great send-off and uh, the the narration that he does and how mm. how almost the monotone to yeah the letters dear and yeah <laughs> uh, no the, this how monotone the narration is also adds to that whole thing it it's perpetuates amazing. it and it's it gives the movie this underlying current that that kind of sucks you in and makes it 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 makes you on its wavelength. It gets you right there on the wavelength that it, and and the wavelength that it wants you to be on is just slightly beneath the surface. You know what I mean? Yeah, and then the way this is a road movie is that after his wife dies, June Squibb. And he had already bought this. Plays his wife. Yeah, exactly. And he had already bought this mini Winnie, the the Mm -hmm. mini Winnebago, Mm -hmm. not the big one. That they should have, he should have yep. no, not been so never, stingy. Should have never accomplished anything he wanted to. In his nope. Life. <laughs> he got the mini Winnie, and so she dies, and he's like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna go visit my childhood home. I'm gonna trek across I Kansas, go to Nebraska. my daughter's wedding I'm anyway, go- and I'm gonna go convince my daughter she shouldn't marry this yeah. this dweeb that she's decided to marry." And that's Hope Davis as his daughter. I do miss her. I, do, I miss Hope Davis a lot. And Dermot Mulroney. Yep, yep. With the with the big Fu Manchu that's mustache. That's funny. But yeah. the but the funniest supporting character in this movie has to be Kathy Bates. And it, there was a big deal made about the film because of Kathy Bates because <laughs> hot tub she's in her sixties and there's a hot tub scene in which she shows her breasts. It's one of the funniest scenes still to this day. I, I can think. It's of. a great, great, great scene. <laughs> and you know what's so funny is that I haven't seen this movie. In seven or eight years, but I remember all of this. I remember I even right down to Dermot Mulroney's so Fu Manchu mustache. It looks ridiculous. In that's it. that's how much of a of an impression this film leaves on you, and that's how good it well, is. Well, the shots, the close up shots of Nicholson, you know, mm-hmm. the close up shots of clocks and things like that. How weathered he looks. Very painy. His hair looks great in it. Yeah. Um, I mean, his hair looks so great on the cover. Oh, it's great. It's yeah. got that windblown like yeah. Boris Johnson thing, his, where it's even his all, always messy. Boring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but there's this. Uh, Roger Ebert again to mention him. Uh, he he said that this just added to the legend of of Nicholson because of the way he was able to upend the Nicholson persona. But um, the great thing that he said about the bait scene <laughs> was that that character enters the picture scarily available, <laughs> <laughs> which is perfectly right when you see it. You. You almost fear for Schmidt. <laughs> well, and what's so funny about that scene is because previously in the film, he made a pass at someone else mm. that was um, swiftly rejected. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of gets a little dose of his own medicine true. when she makes a pass at him. And he realizes, you know, as turned off as he is by that, that's exactly what had just happened to yeah. someone else. Yeah. And it's... He does realize that. And in 2002... Um, that 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 would be nothing now in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's commonplace. That that kind of thing. That that 
being put into a film. But in 2002, that, that's pretty smart for the for this showing this older man what I agree what what uh, sexual harassment can kind of be be like even yeah. if it's mild to give it back a little bit yeah yeah, it's yeah. A, a wake up call this is a terrific movie yeah i, I do, love i do love movie. this movie maybe my favorite alexander payne wow i'm trying to think it's close for me mm-hmm. cuz i love election a lot but i also love the descendants he hasn't made a good movie in a while, though. Downsizing was a major disappointment. Yeah. I'm yeah. hoping he can bounce We'll back. see what he does next. So we're into the top three. These we are, are. We got bangers now. We do. Bangers now. Yeah, the rest of the way are basically perfect for me. Me too. Although these next three films are perfect five-star films. Okay. But I, th- I wonder if we're even going to have any of the same. I would hope one of them is, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What do you have at number three? Number three for me is... Um, the first time I remember seeing uh, most of these actors in a movie, um, there's not many people in this movie, uh, but I saw this at a very early age, um, Badlands. That is my number three as well. <laughs> really? Yes. Wow. That, is that the first time we've had back-to-back Back-to-back the same? I think so. Maybe. This might be the first time. We have a lot of the sames here and there, but yeah. back-to-back, wow. Yeah, um... It's the first Terrence Malick film. This is one of those movies that among our close-knit group of friends, not movies, one of those directors. Yes. That we all completely agree on. Yes. We are all obsessed, basically. We all love everything he's put out. Basically. Yeah. I, I'm more split on his most recent movies. Sure. But you, but we all still agree that they're very good. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Whether or not we love I think he's. Them. I think he's worn out his most recent style. I'm glad he's moving, hopefully moving on. Can't wait. Can't wait. Yeah. This year, we'll, we'll find out with yes, A Hidden soon. Life. Soon. Yeah. But this movie is the debut. Yes, his debut. in an impossibly young Sissy Spacek, an impossibly young looking Martin Sheen. Yeah, even though Martin Sheen was already into his 30s here. Doesn't he look like it. He looks young. Yeah. He does. He looks like he's 22. Sissy Spacek looks unbelievably young in this movie. Playing a fifteen-year-old, I don't know if she was. She wasn't that young when this movie came out, but she's playing a fifteen-year-old. Um, this movie's based on real life uh, events, um, but uh, it, it takes place through the South Dakota-ish area of the country, where basically this this girl who doesn't have a good relationship with her father. He's an, uh, played by Warren Oates, who's he's a, a great, painter, great actor in the seventies. Yeah. Um, he was very unlikable in parts, but that was just because of how good he was. Um, she's she's kind of just fed up with her home life anyway, and then she becomes she develops a crush on uh, Martin Sheen's character, who's who, been like following her constantly. Yeah, he's he's a he's pretty creepy. Yeah. Well, first of all, he just he's in his twenties and he's creeping on a fifteen year old kills girl. for fun anyway, just for the hell of it. Sure. If someone ticks him off, he basically just murders them. And but he has a James Dean quality about him that she falls in love with. Um, this movie, you know, 1973, um, Terrence Malick kind of burst onto the scene here. This is when he made short movies. Yeah. (laughs) His first two movies, this and Days of Heaven, were under 100 minutes, which for him is like remarkable now. (laughs) I don't think he could ever do that again. Um, but this movie is beautiful to look at, um, he immediately, I mean, he already immediately in a debut established how much, like, nature really is at the forefront. Yeah, and, and, and of he, his doesn't, vision. he doesn't obsess over it 
the way he has no this century, <laughs> but um, but you can tell that the the thumbprints are there. Oh, you know? Yeah, the seeds were being planted already. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and but, he uses music really well in this, and and I know that's uh, because I'm such an obsessive uh, uh, Nat King Cole fan mm-hmm. that there's uh, I'm a little biased, but there is that one scene near the end of the second act where the Nat, that Nat King Cole song plays a big role mm-hmm. when they're sitting in the car listening to it. Um, yeah, the the way he uses music, the way that he shoots nature in this film, um, it's it it's beautiful performances. This is a very very near perfect film. I agree, and, and this also established his love for female characters narrating movies too. He, he's had that a lot. There's a lot of narration by all of his characters now, whispering <laughs> yeah. narration. But this was like actual narration. There's a lot more dialogue in this movie than most of his movies. Oh, totally. Um, Sissy Spacek actually gets to narrate this movie plainly. You can hear everything she's saying. <laughs> um, but this this movie is not really concerned with a killing spree necessarily. Even though he does kill a lot of people. He does, but it's, the movie's not focusing totally on that. It's just... It's a part of their relationship. Yeah, and you know they're going to get caught. Oh, yeah. It's just a matter of when and how. Mm-hmm. And you never feel afraid for her. Right. But you're terrified for everyone else that they come in contact with because you don't know. He's so volatile, you well, don't yeah, know what he's capable of. you worried for her... Uh, thinking that certain things are just normal after seeing them. Oh, totally. Him do them. Because she's so, she's so young. Yeah, them. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. the naivety of that um, is scary in itself. Also, Terrence Malick is in this film. Uh, I don't remember. So you know the, the door-to-door salesman that comes to the door mm-hmm. when they're holding up in that, in that house? I think I remember vaguely. That That's door-to-door him? salesman is Terrence Malick. Interesting. Yeah. Which he would never do today. In the white suit and the white hat? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and that, you're right. That's not something he would ever do today. He doesn't even do interviews. No, exactly. He didn't even go to Cannes when, when Tree of Life, Life won Palm Do- the Palm Dior. Oh, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he wasn't Did even it? there. Yeah. But Jessica, Jessica Chastain was like, he's the most gracious person. He can talk to you about anything. He just doesn't want to He doesn't want to be seen. That's just <laughs> not his private. thing. He's private. Yeah, he's private. That's just not his version of being a, of being a celebrity. I'm glad he's still around. Me too, and I'm glad he's still an artist making great art. He's very prolific now. He's definitely one of my favorite directors of all time. And I've not even seen all of his stuff. What have you not seen? I've not seen Days of Heaven. Oh, you need to see it. Yeah. Criterion. A lot Uh, of reasons to say that these days. Yeah, there are lots of reasons to say that these days. What is number two on your list? Number two for me was pretty hard to... I didn't know which one to go with for one and two, but... Uh, ultimately, I went with Easy Rider for number two. Um, a lot of things to say about this movie. Definitely. Especially as we sit here today. Um, one being, well, Peter Fonda at the forefront of this movie. And Peter Fonda passed a couple of days ago. Just two days ago. Yeah. Basically, you know, the, the Fonda name is legendary <laughs> in cinema history anyway. Absolutely. Um, one of One of Hollywood's most... Most royalty-like families. There's a lot of incredible things about this movie as far as the timeline of American cinema and where it landed. 1969, um, Woodstock's happening when this movie's out in theaters. Uh, There's a lot of um, rebellion going on, a lot of different ways of thinking. This movie was kind of a rebellious movie, honestly. Uh, It's very anti-establishment. It's very 
kind of a lot of people were mad when this movie came out that it was about nothing. They were like, "Why is this movie successful? It's about literally about nothing." <laughs> um, this movie, directed by Dennis Hopper, uh, written by Hopper, Fonda, and Terry Southern, they were all involved in making this movie. Uh, this is a monumental movie for a lot of reasons. Uh, this movie stands still as one of those movies, like, like I would put this in a category, a weird category of last 20 minutes that fucked me up bad. Like I can't unsee it like Requiem for a dream. Really? There's, there's a, there's a acid trip gone bad toward the end of this movie. And then a shocking final scene that blew me out of the water. And I haven't seen it in several years, but I still remember everything about it. Um, again, though, <laughs> here's a name that's coming up again, um, because this was the first huge performance by Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson in this movie comes in about halfway through, and they meet him, strangely enough, in a jail cell, and he plays a lawyer who still has good standing with cops and, and, and all sorts of congressmen in his local area. They're... This movie is about two kind of gangster, motorcycle gangster guys, Fonda and Hopper, who are going from L.A. to Mardi Gras in New Orleans because uh, there's a bad drug deal gone bad, and they're escaping it. And oddly enough, Phil Spector plays the drug lord. Really? In the scene where... The, yeah. Really? There's a lot of weird ties to, to a lot of cultural things in this movie. I guess I should I should say now, you know this, but the listeners don't. I've never seen Easy Rider. Right, yes, yeah. yes. So. Um, there's a lot of reasons for you to see it now. Yeah, the, absolutely. The Peter Fonda thing on your mind. Is it on Criterion? <laughs> I believe it is. It might be. Yes, yeah. yes. It's also the 50th anniversary. Of so this it movie. should be accessible. This year. On some, some streaming platforms, gotta have it right it now. It must be noted also... We haven't really talked about Dennis Hopper yet on this show, but you know I'm a big admirer totally. of Dennis Hopper because he he represents, to me, one of the the guys on the front end of what was about to happen in the 70s with groundbreaking cinema, people d- branching out and doing their own thing, doing it for dirt, cheap, kind of DIY. Doing it for arts. Right. For art's Dennis sake. Hopper, and I'm not saying that d- directors in previous decades didn't do it for art. No, sure. But I, I don't think a lot of American art- ones did. Yeah, yeah, and this was the real artistic movement of American cinema was mm-hmm. the 70s. Dennis Hopper, this was in 69, and he was ahead of it a little bit. And then it ushered in all of this. Yeah. Uh, so, and his direction here is, is great. Uh, this is, this is uh, quite, a, quite a movie. It, it's only 94 minutes long, and I always forget how short it is. Wow. It does go by quickly, um, but it's it's a must, a must-see. Well, number two on my list um, is pretty out of left field, and it is under 90, 90 minutes. Really? Oh, I know what it is. It I is know, 82 I can, minutes. I'm, I know what it is. And it is directed by Larry Charles. Yep, yep. <laughs> I and I want to and I want to get the full title right. It is Borat: Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. <laughs> um, this is one of the funniest films I've ever seen in my life. Especially um, if you take it back to the time it was released to 2005. 
2006 when it came out. Think about that time. Uh, this might have been the hardest I've ever laughed in a theater, seeing a film in a theater. I think this was the best comedy comedy experience I've had in a theater before. I would say it's in my top five, somewhere a little below um, Pineapple Express and Kingpin. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only thing that comes close to it uh, or is on its level is, as far as in-theater comedy experiences was Pineapple Express. Well, that, that was hard because we went to the midnight opening of that. Yeah, I, I saw Borat, I think, three times, three or four times in the theater. That's how how much I loved it when it came out, and it's still to this day one of my top favorite top five favorite comedies ever. Um, I absolutely love this movie, and it is a great road trip movie because he goes all over America and visits does. so many different aspects of the country, mm-hmm. and he never breaks character in some situations where almost any other actor would break. And this is something he could not do anymore. You know, this was the time he took advantage of it at the time. Yes. And you're right. And because he was so, because he was so successful at doing it, nobody else could even do it ever again. Right. Nobody could do this now or anything like it now. You know, um, it's, it's amazing that he's gotten away with doing the, the show that he's been doing on Showtime, Mm -hmm. considering it's him and people should already, you know, just be, just be uh, uh, red flags. They should, should yes. be flying up. <laughs> yes. But he, it's crazy that he can still get away with it now. Um, but he, no one could make a movie like this and and pull it off. I haven't um, watched it in years. When's the last time you've rewatched this? The last time I rewatched this has probably been a, a couple of years, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe three or four years since I saw it. But every time I watch it, I I, I die laughing from just the interactions he has with people. Um, to the way he pronounces Pamela, um, <laughs> and just the 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 hotel scene where he's wrestling with Ken uh, Davaton or however you pronounce that guy's name. Oh, that scene! Um, oh it's, my god! It's so raunchy. It's so stupid. But yet, um, it's really serious uh, underneath everything. There's, there's with, a lot being with said. what he's saying politically, and and I think that's what's so great about Sasha Baron Cohen um, overall is is how funny he can be while still being dead serious about the underlying themes that he's trying to to focus on. And that's on. with everything he does. Uh, even even his character in Talladega Nights is saying a lot more... Absolutely. ...than what it seems. Absolutely, and that's what makes him one of my favorite comedic actors... Great. ...of the centuries, just because of how intelligent he is. I mean, he went to Oxford. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's how intelligent he is, how talented he he is as an actor. Um with not breaking character is one of his biggest biggest assets. He's brilliant. Yes. Um and then and and just that there's always something important that he has to say no matter what film he's making. Um there's always something important that he has to say while still juxtaposing that with sometimes super filthy comedy oh, yeah. or just su- super stupid comedy. And this is a perfect mixture of both. He does dirty and stupid at the same time while still making it uh, fresh and important and intelligent and, and useful. Yeah, this is probably the best he's ever done in a film. This is, this is his best shining mm-hmm. work. It's, it's, it's terrific. But he caught lightning in a bottle, as we said, and you yeah. know, it wasn't going to get better after that or, or no. more... Or more fresh like you yeah mentioned. and he's never he's never matched this true and he never will and that's okay yeah um uh he's doing other things now you know and he's even trying his hand at, at doing a little bit of serious work too so 
more power to him. I, I'll follow the guy into battle. I'll watch anything he does. I really wish he could have played Freddie Mercury. Yeah, that would have been with great. a different director. That would have been great. Yeah. yeah, that would have been awesome. All right, well, we're at number one now. Yes, we are. And I know we don't have the same number. Oh, one. absolutely not. I know we don't. Um, so this movie is, if you're really looking at it critically, it's probably not better than any of the movies I've already mentioned as far as how well made the movie is. But, man, there's so much heart, and the rewatchability factor is through the roof. It has two of my favorite comedic actors of all time. Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> yeah, that's true. What are their last names? <laughs> Do America. That's yeah, their last yes, name. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and that's Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Wow. This is your number one. Oh, wow. I, I watched this just a few hours ago for probably the 82nd time. And, um, like I said, rewatchability factor for this movie. I... You know how a lot of people are like, there's certain actors who you just miss. A lot of people like to talk about how they miss Chris Farley. Yeah. Um, Well, I really miss John Candy all the time. And I'm reminded of it every once in a while. And this morning I was reminded of it again. This is the great John Candy performance. Um, What I love about this movie the most is it puts Steve Martin in the main role but Steve Martin even realizes that this is a John Candy vehicle. Sorry for the pun. But um And he's just gonna stand a little left to center and let Candy do his damn perfect thing. Perfect companion performance in this movie. Yeah. Um the movie is written and directed by John Hughes, who we'll talk about again later on, and we talked about last episode. Um been a very Hughesian and Alexander Painian uh I last couple that. of episodes. Yeah. Um yeah. Hughes, uh, man, he this thing this thing sings and it it's paced so well. Uh, Steve Martin gets one of the great, if not best, Steve Martin scenes in his career. Uh, about three fourths of the way through at an air, airport terminal, uh, where this movie gets to earn its R rating. It's a legendary <laughs> scene where Steve Martin gets to say the word fuck. Fuckity fuck fuck fuck, doesn't he? Many, 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 many times. Yes, yeah. Um, and um, the employee at the time that he's berating, basically, <laughs> is um, the, the woman who plays the uh, secretary in Ferris Bueller's Day Off as well, where she keeps pulling the pens out of her hair. The redheaded lady? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh. Where at one point she says, do you have your rental agreement? And he says, no, I fucking do not. <laughs> It's been so long since I've seen this movie. Like, well over ten years. Man, you've got to rewatch it. Yeah, I, I know you're to. not a big digger of John Hughes. But, but this, this but is this, one of his films that I actually do like. This also came after his focus on the teenage area. Yeah. He's working with two giants of comedy. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. But what this movie has more than just comedy is... One... It's one of the only Thanksgiving-centric movies of all time, which yes. is nice. You can't even make a Thanksgiving list. Because there's not enough of them. But <laughs> You'd have to get into like That's really weird horror films. one unique thing about probably. this movie. Yeah. Um, also, man, the heart of the Dale character played by John Candy um, and what he actually teaches Steve Martin's character in this movie is, I mean, it's a, it's a great, great movie. It's so much fun and... It, it just makes you miss John Candy. Yeah. 
Now I'm going to go watch Uncle Buck. <laughs> right now, before we finish, I got to leave. Oh, Macaulay. <laughs> um, you know, I, I love that you went with um, a sentimental favorite mm-hmm. at the number one spot. And, and we're willing to admit that there were other films on the list that are probably critically better. Oh, yeah. Better looking, better written, better directed, whatever. But that that film, for you, just sentimentally can't be budged from the number one spot. Well, because what is a road trip? I'm thinking about myself, how a road trip makes me feel. And it makes you feel sentimental. Nostalgic, yeah. And so that's why, um, same here, uh, there were other films on my list that I felt, yeah, they're better. And in fact, when I was making the list and rewatching some things, I actually bumped this down to like number three and then finished watching it this morning and bumped it right back up to number one. I was like, no. Oh, re- you also rewatched your number one this morning. I did. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And that is Barry Levinson's Rain Man. Oh, wow. I haven't I, seen forever. I've always been a huge fan of Rain Man ever since I was a kid. It was like one of the first like adult films that I ever, that I ever saw. 89, and, right? Is that when it came out? Uh, don't hold me to that, but yeah. that sounds about right. Um, man, I love this movie. I, I've always loved this movie. Um, and it is anchored by the two lead performances that are so vastly different performances, but also fantastic. Yeah. Tom Cruise is impossibly young in this movie. Even though he wasn't that young, he just looks super young. Um, and Dustin Hoffman is pretty remarkable in a, in, a, in a performance that he probably would get a lot of grief for if he did it now. Sure. Um, like the Sean Penn and I Am Sam thing. Exactly. <laughs> but I think he's... He's terrific in this movie. And I think it's, it's, you know, Dustin Hoffman has the very, very showy performance, obviously, because he's playing autistic. Um, and that kind of overshadows how great Tom Cruise is in this movie. I've always said this about this movie, too. Um, the overshadowing of the Cruise performance here. Um, I think this is one of his first great performances. His character has an arc to it that Hoffman's character doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a, he's a prick. He's an asshole to his coworkers and his girlfriend and even Raymond Babbitt himself. Um, uh, for the first two thirds of the film, he's a jerk. And the more time he spends with his brother that he never knew he had, um, the more he starts to become less selfish and think about other people and think about the consequences of his behavior and, and all of that. And his character really goes on a journey for lack of a better word and comes out the other end, a much better person for it. And that's, and I know we keep talking about how these films, certain, certain films on the, on this list so far have, have had heart. And this one oddly enough has plenty of heart to it too. Um, I really, really love this, this movie, not just because of the performances that are fantastic. And some, 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 uh, um, you know, the woman who plays his girlfriend, or the character's name is Susanna. I can't remember the Italian actress that plays her. I haven't um, seen this movie in years and years. She's terrific as well. And she's kind of the, the, the hidden gem in the film as well, because she's, she's in the first act and she's in a bulk of the third act. But the middle chunk of the film is just Cruz and Hoffman driving through the country. I still remember a lot of the driving scenes. Driving from Cincinnati to Los Angeles. And the one scene that will always be in my brain is the, the scene where they're going up the escalator. Yeah, absolutely, because yeah. it's in the trailer and everything. It's a great scene. They're in it's Vegas. a great image. He realizes that his brother uh, is a savant when it comes to math, and so and he, he needs, to, to, his he needs to make $80,000 as quickly as he possibly can, or he, he's out of business. 
And so he, he has his brother count cards at the blackjack table in Vegas. So yeah. And so he get, he gets him, he gets him a suit and everything and they, and they go count cards. Uh, there's, there, there's just so much to love about this film from the Vegas scenes and them sitting in diners and the toothpick scene with, um, Oh God, what is her face? that's going to bother me, but I'm not going to, it's just been too long since I've seen yeah. this. Um, and, and, uh, because they're originally from Cincinnati and I'm a big Cincinnati Reds fan. Um, there's a lot of talk about baseball in the film, especially the, the Reds teams of the seventies. Um, and Dustin Hoffman's wearing this, this Cincinnati Reds t-shirt through, he wears it to bed every night in the movie. I do and, remember that. Yeah. Um, it's, I just, I've, I've, I've always absolutely loved this film. I, it's definitely my favorite Barry Levinson film. It's hard for me. I have to go back and look because he did have yeah. a good stretch for a while. He there. did. He was Wag making the some dog great is one of my favorites. Yeah. Again, another great Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. And where this film ends up, uh, there's a. It's not a courtroom scene. It's basically the you know, they're meeting with this doctor who's going to make a recommendation to the court as to what should be Dustin Hoffman character. Dustin Hoffman's character's fate. Basically, is he going to stay with Tom Cruise or is he going to go back to Walbrook, the mental institution that Tom Cruise basically stole him from? Right. Yeah. Um, And uh, that scene is really powerful. Cruise's performance in it especially is terrific. Uh, Hoffman is great in it. And it's just where the film ultimately ends up is really heartwarming and bittersweet and... uh, the sentimentality won over, and I had to. I'm I had gl- to keep I'm it in number one. I'm glad you did finally go that route yeah. with a, with your number one choice. Yeah, those are good number ones. Yeah, I, and this was a really both f- '80s too. Yeah, yeah, that's surprising. This was a really fun list to make, and we had you know, uh, we had some lots of different decades. Uh, Definitely, uh, I had '60s, '80s, '90s, 2000s. I had '70s and '80s, '90s and 2000s on it as well. Yeah. So yeah, it's fun, uh, man. Lots of fun. Lots of fun. Well, now we've come to my favorite part of the show, the throwback challenge. Um, Andy, uh, we have a listener-commissioned throwback challenge. Why don't you hit us with the email? Yes. As we discussed last week, uh, Jess Husick, my girlfriend, sent in this email. It's my dad's birthday in a couple of weeks, and in honor of him, I'd love for you guys to review two of my dad's favorite movies. My mom died when my brother and I were at 11 and 6, and my dad raised us on his own afterwards. Ever since... He's always seen a lot of himself in two classics, Sleepless in Seattle and Mr. Mom. Whenever these are on TV, he grabs a beer, sits back and says, geez, oy, I know what that's like. Cheers to the single dads and to mine. So these were, let me just say right off the bat, much more fun to watch than The Accountant and The The Town. Town. Yeah, they were. Keep in mind, I watched The Town Extended Cut. Yeah. Too, so there's that. Well, um, I would like to start with Mr. Mom, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so this also is John Hughes wrote wrote this film. This is before he was directing movies. Right yeah. bef- his first directing gig was Sixteen Candles, which was the year after. So this is 1983. Yeah. Yeah. So he wrote it. He obviously didn't direct it. This, this no. was directed by Stan Dragoti. You have to look that up. I had to look it up because I was like. Literally any schlub could have directed this movie. It's directed like a bad TV movie. I'll say that. Yeah, it's not directed well. It's not a very good movie. And I'm reminded of that every time I see it. But by the by the end of it, I'm like, well, the energy here. Yeah. Keaton is just so good in this movie. So is Terry Gar. Terry Gar's tremendous. I love Terry Gar in and this And Martin movie. Mull plays a great villain. He's And he's... 
that 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 smarmy villain that you just you want to punch that mustache right off his face. The kind of guy who walks into a hotel room when he's not invited when when you're bathing and yeah. having a bubble bath and and pays off the bellhop to to yeah. let him in. Yeah, exactly. That um, kind of douchebag. There's just there's so many fun scenes in the film. That, uh, there are that uh, as as lazy and shoddy as the direction can be, and sometimes the pacing. It's still so much fun. It's still a really fun movie. It's a fun movie. It's lighthearted. It, it, it. There's there's the scene when um you know all the all the worker people are coming over to his to his house and he's got the the the, the oh, laundry the, the laundry's going crazy yeah. and the vacuum's going crazy and then the the you know there's a fire in the kitchen and th- there's that it's whole scene ridiculous. Then there's the the scene where they go to her boss's house and he's having a some sort of like crazy decathlon maze thing that that, mo- that they're competing that scene in where they're fighting to win that race is in yeah. was in so many 80s movies back yeah, then and exactly it's like, and, and it's like it's just a, there's a great moment where he, where it, he plays the better man and loses the race on purpose isn't child's play three the entire film uh, based upon a premise like that child's play three is the one in the military I think. yeah i know yeah, it's like yeah, war yeah, games yeah yeah, yeah. 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 um but the movie is very choppy yes like you said it's very it's not put together well at all. It's actually kind of a bad movie. I, I love how inherently Detroit it is as, as well. As mm-hmm. well, um, you know, his job that he gets laid off from is at the at the auto <laughs> manufacturing. Tambor. Oh my God, Jeffrey Tambor and Christopher, Christopher Lloyd. Lloyd. Um, yeah, he, he it's so that part of it's very Detroit. They're they're Lions fans, and there's always Detroit Lions stuff throughout there. Terry Gard's wearing a University of Michigan shirt. It's a very Detroit. I've film. always really liked Terry Gar, and she is Me very too. good in this. Me too. Um, I, I like what I really admired about it is that Terry Gar's straight up 100% like commitment to her family. It's very, it's very, it's a great character. Yeah. She, she's a very good character. Um, wholesome and just very genuine character. Uh, there, there are scenes with Keaton and his, he's basically one of the gals. You yeah. Know, one of the housewives. Of, but he's doing it in a very manly way. He grows out the beard and they're, the they're group playing, that he's with is pretty fun. They're playing poker for the, for coupons, yeah. for grocery coupons and he's smoking cigars and stuff. And like the first time the neighbor lady hits on him at the supermarket and then, and then he walks away and doesn't really pay attention to it. But then one of the other women is like, he's married. She's, so were we once, <laughs> she says. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> but again, it all comes down to, of course, Michael Keaton. Uh, yeah. he's, he's so good in it. He's very funny. There's movie. a scene where he is really offended by, the first time he's really offended by Martin Mull, and Martin Mull's in his house. He's got the chainsaw going. he's got going. the chainsaw <laughs> In the Detroit Lions hat. And he just revs it up. Yeah. And he, Martin Mull's like, what the hell is this? Yeah. He's like, I can't hear you. <laughs> I can't hear you. Yeah. It's 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 a movie saved by the energy of the actors. Yeah. And 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 how fun John Hughes. It's a fun setup. It. Yeah. It's a fun premise. It's a yeah. good it's a good uh role for Keaton to kind of break out with. Yeah. Um so let's talk about Nora Ephron's Sleepless in Seattle. Mm. Last last episode, when this was mentioned in the email, you said, this is a classic. I did call it a classic. Uh, every time I rewatch it, I'm like, I really like this movie. Yeah? I don't love it. I don't know why. Um, because I love Tom Hanks, and I... I would say Meg Ryan is one of my favorite actresses ever, uh, especially this era, this kind of stretch she had going she is charming 
Um, and of course, they have a great chemistry. Uh, this movie's full of a lot of people, actually. Yeah. It I is. always forget that you have Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie O'Donnell. You have uh, Bill Pullman as the ridiculous, like, very uh, nervous and paranoid boyfriend. And allergic. To everything. Yeah. Um, you got Rob Reiner in this movie. Um, who else? Bruno Kirby? Bruno Kirby's in it yeah. for a hot minute as yeah. well, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of fun New Yorky actors in this movie. <laughs> yep. Uh, Gabby Hoffman? I love Gabby Hoffman. I always have. Yeah. Um, we're going to be talking about her more, too, um, soon. Not yeah. Next episode. We'll tell you guys why here in a minute. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, lots of familiar faces pop up in this. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's another nostalgic movie. Um, there are scenes that you'll... They're forever imprinted in your brain. Like, the stealer of the... Sh- Scene stealer in this movie almost though is Jonah. Yeah, the kid. Um, Ross, I think his name is um, Ross Mallinger or something like that. Never really saw him do much after this, um, but he is him. His chemistry with Hanks and their scenes together are terrific. Um, and, and everyone knows this movie. Come on, he, Jonah's the instigator of the whole the whole setup um, through the radio show. Um, you know, where he's kind of putting his dad on the market, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. And he becomes a national sensation. Right, yeah. yes. So you know where it's getting to, but when it gets there at the Empire State Building later on, it's always it just warms the heart. <sighs> Andy, <laughs> I absolutely love this movie. I know you do. <laughs> I, every single time I watch this film, I am taken back, um, and I fall in love with it more and more each time. Did you watch it recently? I watched it two nights ago. I think this is my favorite romantic comedy of all time. Whoa, really? I think this is the perfect romantic comedy. I think it is a perfect film. Holy shit. I absolutely love this movie. You think it's better than when Harry met Sally? I do. Okay. Uh, I think this is the best romantic comedy I've ever seen. I love, love, love this movie. I I can't express that enough or shout it from the rooftops enough. Hanks and Ryan, to say that they have great chemistry together in this film is such a funny thing because... They don't have scenes. They barely speak to one another until the very, very last scene in the film. But they do accomplish the chemistry. Somehow. Efron's a great writer. She's a great writer and a great director. Um, Hanks is so great in this movie. The scenes where he's talking on the phone to the doctor on the hotline, Dr. Marsha Fieldstone or whatever Mm -hmm, her name is. mm -hmm. Um, And he's conveying um, how much he misses his wife and the relationship that they had. And he delivers these monologues that are beautiful and gut-wrenching. And you see her, there's, there's shots where they cut to Meg Ryan listening on the radio. In her car a lot. In her car or in her kitchen. Um, and she's visibly moved mm-hmm. by what he's saying. And it's like, that's kind of where the chemistry cuts in. Yeah. Is that even though they're not trading dialogue with one another the chemistry is still visible somehow. And I think that's one of the things that's very special about the film. Yeah. Um, her chemistry with Rosie O'Donnell. Um, 
man, this script is so whip smart. Yeah. The, the conversations about nothing that people are having, um, between like, like, uh, uh, Meg Ryan and Rosie O'Donnell and the other guys that work in the office are having these conversations about things that they heard on the radio or read in the paper. Um, it's one of the nice things about Efron. She notices things like that. She is such a good writer. Mm-hmm. She is such a good writer. The conversations that, that there's the conversation that, that Tom Hanks and Rob Reiner are having in the bar about, the way dating is nowadays here in the nineties. Um, just excellent. And it's so, you can tell a lot of it is ad libbed ad libbed cause they're talking over one another in mm-hmm, certain parts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, man, the, the writing is, I mean, pitch perfect in this film. They use great music. I'm a big Mel Torme fan. I'm a gigantic Nat King Cole fan. Mm-hmm. The second time he gets, he gets brought up in this episode. Yeah. Um, she used the music, the soundtrack to this is great. Even Harry Connick Jr. Doesn't bother me in the, in the soundtrack. <laughs> um, Gabby Hoffman uh, and and the other child that you mentioned, Jonah's mm-hmm, character, mm-hmm. excellent in the film. I just think I can't find a single thing wrong with this movie. I absolutely love it. And I think one of the unheralded uh, aspects of the film is how great Bill Pullman is in this movie. Within the, what a nervous the, wreck. The second scene that he's in, um, I, I was blown away by. He's so nervous and Flitty and and allergic to everything, but he's also a really nice guy. He is. You know? He's genuinely a good guy. You know, it's never going to last, but yeah. And, and you hurt. You actually feel for him, to be honest. And you know, one of the great things that, and I, and this is all Efron, is um, it's such an unconventional romantic comedy. Like we already said, because the the the, the two romantic leads in the film don't even meet one another really until the very 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 last scene. Um, but the very the way the film opens right out of the gate is his wife just died and they're at the the burial site mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's deciding to move to Seattle and then when you first the very first scene that you meet Meg Ryan's character she's with Bill Pullman and they're already talking about how they're engaged and they're going to they're go- going to meet her family and she's she's uh, um priming him for for who's who in the family and very committed and yeah and and so like your introduction to these people is his wife just died and he's grieving and she's already in a, in, in a, in a relationship that's very serious. They're, they're about to announce to the family that they're married. I mean, the, how many romantic comedies start out that way? You True. know what I mean? But that, that would have been shot down at the pitch had it not been for when Harry met Sally was already a huge success mm-hmm. and Tom Hanks had already been an Oscar nominee and Big was a huge success, too. Yeah. And so when you have those two attached, basically, your movie can do whatever it wants at that time, yeah. which was a benefit to Efron. She could start a movie in that exact way. And, by the way, like we already said, oh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan won't have a scene in this movie until the last scene of this movie together in the same, in person together. Yeah. How does that work? It does. Yeah. It does. Uh also, really quick, Rita Wilson, oh, Tom yes. Hanks' real-life yes. wife, yes. who plays his sister in this film, mm-hmm. um, sh- she's terrific in the scene where she's describing the premise of the film, An Affair to Remember. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, and, and <laughs> They're at dinner. She's another one we'll talk about on the next episode, too. Rita Wilson? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I just, I, once more, for the, for the back row, I absolutely adore this film. You do. I love it, love it, love it. It's five stars for me. Hey, I, it's it's I perfect. Don't blame you. I can't find a single thing wrong. I don't with blame it. you. My favorite romantic comedy of all time. I'm at a four on it. But can we can we go rewind for one second? We did not give our ratings for um, Mr. Mom. Yeah, three stars. I'm at a three. It's fun. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. fun. Mm-hmm. It's not. 
like we said, directing wise, it's not it's not direct. Uh, hope that person's okay. Uh, Downtown Indianapolis. What are you gonna do? Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, they went to go see Where'd You Go, Bernadette, and now they're <laughs> passing out. <laughs> so uh, what it lacks in directing, it's still it's not a two and a half star. It's not a bad film. So I I, I give that one three. I'm at that too. Yeah. I can't go any lower, but I definitely can't go any higher. So uh, it's time to talk about our throwbacks for next week's episode. And speaking of girlfriends sending us throwback challenge requests, mm. my girlfriend has decided to get into the to the mix. Uh, and she writes, I have a throwback challenge for you guys. The female-focused coming-of-age films Now and Then and Whale Rider. The former came out when I was around 10 years old, and the latter in my mid-high school years, both pivotal times in a young person's life. I'd love to revisit both movies now that I'm a fairly well-established in my adult years. Now and Then features a fun, famous cast and an absolute killer soundtrack. Whale Rider features a strong female lead and a different cultural perspective. And most importantly, whales, the best animal ever... There are some really fantastic whale <laughs> scenes near the end, and I'd love an opportunity to re-experience both of them. And I and I and I love that she wrote that because um, she has to watch so many of these films with me every week for the show. So she's doing this very selfishly because why not? Because she wants to rewatch these of movies. So she's sending them in as a I'm throwback. I'm thinking about what she's had to watch, so that I will have to in watch the past. Them. <laughs> she's had to really put up with some <laughs> shit, man. I, oftentimes I have to go upstairs and and watch them. Upstairs in my office by myself. Yeah, I'm like, hey, Noah, watch yeah. Cries and Whispers. Why don't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> she's like, I don't want to watch Pulp Fiction. I, do, I don't have any any desire to watch that right now, you know? And, I get it. And I get it. So so she's doing this very selfishly because she wants to watch these movies. So if she has to sit through four hours of throwback challenges with me, it might as well be something that she she chose. Well, <laughs> so. I'll save a lot of this for when we actually talk about these two movies. But let me say, I agree with a lot of her sentiments on her uh, what she mentioned about both of these movies. Yeah. Because they both kind of hit for me at specific times in my life as and that, well. And that's the other fun thing is that you've seen both of these films and I've not seen either one. So You're going to have fun. Yeah, I, I can't wait. So that's next week. Speaking of next week, th- this concludes our show for today. Um, remember to subscribe to the Film Harmonic on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review and a generous rating if you're feeling so inclined. Subscribe also on Spotify, Buzzsprout, Amazon Alexa, and Google Play. Send us your suggestions for the throwback challenges, as Jess and Lara have, to thefilmharmonic at gmail.com. Join us on the next episode. We're going to take a week off because I'm moving into a new home. Uh, I just bought my first home with uh, all of this podcast money. Congrats. So <laughs> uh, we're going to take a week off so I can get settled into the new house. Um, but then the next episode, two weeks from now, we will uh, discuss a guilty pleasure of ours, Shia LaBeouf. Yes. And his newest film, The Peanut Butter Falcon. The first of two new Shia LaBeouf movies we'll be talking about this year. That, which is very exciting. Very exciting. Um, and then in addition to that, we're going to rank the six best American remakes of foreign films. Can't wait for that. So add all of that to our newest listener commission throwback challenges, Whale Rider, and Now and Then. And it looks like we have a full show on our hands. So um, if, if there's nothing else, we'll see you next time. See you next time on the Film Harmonic. All right. Oh, to see without my eyes The first time that you kissed me Boundless by the time I cried What an awful sound Fumbling by road
see. 